John chapter 3 is where we're at. We're going to be picking it up in verse 22 where we left off last week. And uh, by way of introduction, let me start here. Two cars drove off a cliff. Now this sounds like an introduction to a joke. And unfortunately, this is not a joke. It's actually a true story. It happened uh, here locally about 20 years ago. And there were two cars. They were filled with teenagers. And they both drove off a cliff. And uh, sadly, there were some kids that were killed. There were many that were injured severely. And in the final analysis, as the investigation unfolded, what they found was that one car was following the other, that the lead car driving down a road that came to an abrupt end to a T intersection didn't realize that the road ended and just drove right over the edge and right off the side. And the car behind them just blindly following this car and over they went as well. And as we get into it today, the big idea of our text is this question, who are you following? Who are you following and why? And so we're going to jump right into it. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing in the Ananon near uh, Salim uh, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, verse 24 there is a key timestamp. It's not just to state the obvious that John was still baptizing uh, because he hadn't yet been uh, thrown into prison by Herod. Uh, no, verse 24 serves to inform us uh, a, a timestamp here. It serves to inform us um, that uh, this event takes place um, before Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin their accounts. You see, in Matthew's gospel, and Mark's gospel, and Luke's gospel, uh, well, they talk about the beginning of Jesus's ministry in the Galilee region. Uh, John here, he's filling in the gap regarding what Jesus was doing after his temptation in the wilderness, but before he began his ministry in the Galilee region. And so he's doing his ministry now, beginning it uh, after his temptation in Judea. And now here's why that's significant. That's significant because this marks the transition from the end of the Old Testament age of the prophets to the beginning of the New Testament age of grace. You see, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. God had been silent for 400 years, and then he called John the Baptist into ministry. And John's ministry was to point to the coming Messiah, preaching a baptism of repentance. And here we read for a brief period of time that John's ministry and Jesus's ministry overlapped. And here now the text says that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing in the region of Judea. And when we get to chapter 4, you'll see that it clarifies Jesus didn't baptize anyone. Uh, it was his disciples that were baptizing. But the idea is that they went there and their ministries overlapped. Now, understand that the baptism that they are performing 
uh, it foreshadowed Christian baptism. Uh, in other words, they're not baptizing people as we might understand it, uh, the baptism today being symbolic of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. No, what they're doing is a baptism of repentance, where they're encouraging people to become baptized as they prepare their hearts to meet the Messiah. If you're with us back in John chapter 1, we saw that baptism didn't begin with Christians. That before Jesus, the Jews practiced this ritual of baptism, uh, and they did so for Gentile proselytes in a cleansing ceremony. And the idea was, hey, you Gentiles, you need to get cleaned up uh, and start following our religious laws. Well, what John the Baptist did uh, is that he took baptism and he applied it to the Jews themselves. And basically, John's message was, hey, it's not just the Gentiles uh, that need cleansing. Everybody needs cleansing. And so being baptized by John and by Jesus' disciples here in, in uh, John chapter 3, um, well, it demonstrated a recognition of sin. It demonstrated a desire for spiritual cleansing. Uh, and, it and it demonstrated a commitment to follow after God, looking ahead to the coming Messiah. And so this now is what Jesus and his disciples are doing in Judea, and they're doing so alongside, as it were, the, uh, John the Baptist and John's disciples. Verse 25, it says, Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John... Uh, and said to him, Rabbi, and the, the they here in verse 26 is John's disciples. And so they come to John and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. In other words, what they're saying here is they're saying, John, look, uh, you know, this Jesus who, who you pointed to, now everybody's coming to him, they're not coming to us. And um, the, the, the focus here is that there is a switch in popularity. See, John the Baptist enjoyed tremendous popularity. And his disciples are now troubled by the fact that the, the people are all going to Jesus. They're not coming uh, to John so much anymore. And the New Living Translation is helpful here in verse 26, it, convert, it conveys the, the attitude of his disciples perfectly. Basically, the way the New Living Translation reads in verse 26 is that they say, hey, everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. Now, let me stop right there and make the point regarding what ministry is and what ministry is not. Uh, what ministry is, ultimately, it's a trust and it's a stewardship. All that you possess uh, has been entrusted to you. Uh, your kids have been entrusted to you. Your spouse has been entrusted to you. Your job has been entrusted to you. Your finances have been entrusted to you. Everything belongs to God. And all that God has entrusted to you and to me, the Bible says that we are to honor God with the things that he has entrusted uh, to us. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord 
with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, not only does this include ministry, right? But listen, understand this is ministry. Let me, let me explain what I'm talking about. When we think of ministry, um, we think of, you know, maybe the ministry of worship or, you know, the ministry of a pastor teaching the word of God or the ministry of somebody who works in children's ministry. Or we think of the ministry uh, of an usher or of an greeter or, you know, of a parking attendant. We think that uh, of those in terms of, of ministry. But understand, ministry is much broader than that. Ministry is really everything. Your whole life is ministry. How you treat people, how, what kind of, a, of an employer you are, what kind of an employee you are, how you handle your finances, how you raise your kids, uh, how you, you know, faithful are you to tithe, all of these things, this is all ministry. Uh, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. In other words, ministry isn't what you get, it's what you give. It's what you give. And listen, that's so important because at the point to where ministry becomes about you and not about Jesus, listen, it stops being ministry and it starts becoming an idol. And this is the dangerous ground that John the Baptist disciples here are in. They're saying, wait a minute, we, we were enjoying all this popularity, all, all of the, you know, the, the focus was on us, and now they're all going to, to Jesus. And so at the point where ministry becomes about you and not about Jesus, stops being a ministry, and it becomes an idol. It becomes this vehicle for the satisfaction of your flesh. It becomes about the praise that you receive. It becomes about the accolades that come your way. It becomes about the benefits, the thing that you get out of it. You know, from time to time, we'll have people who serve in ministry and, and they'll become upset um, that, uh, you know, they're not getting enough attaboys or enough praise or, or, or whatever. And, and, you know, we we'll like to tell people when, when that attitude starts to creep in. And let's just be honest, we all struggle with that attitude when we, when we don't get the acknowledgement or the accolades, right? That there, there is that temptation of our flesh to go, wait a minute, you don't even appreciate what I'm doing. But what we like to say to, to folks that are struggling with that and what needs to be said to us perhaps is, hey, who are you doing it for? Who, who are you doing the things that you do for? Moms, you get this, right? You get this. You, you give your life to take care of these kids who suck you dry, right? And you just, you, you give and you give. And, and do you do it because your kids say, oh, mother, you are so good. And so thank you for my breakfast today. Thank you for the mountain of laundry that you, that you plowed through last week to, to, to fold and to take care of. Thank you, mom, that not only do you take care of me, but that you work and that you labor and that you, your kids don't do that, right? You, 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 this is not, this is not the, the thing. And, and you don't do it for the accolades. You do it because this is your ministry. This is what God has called you to do. 
Well, apparently John's disciples, they've lost sight of that. And it's provoking them now to dispute with the people. And sadly, really, this is nothing new. Throughout the history of the church, we have this tendency where people will elevate men, right, rather than elevating God. I'm reminded of Paul's experience with the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said to them, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Uh, was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? He concludes the thought, says, of course not. I like what John MacArthur said. He said, the measure of success for any ministry is not how many people follow the minister, but how many people follow Christ through the minister. That's a great quote. Well, John's disciples here, they miss that memo completely. They're saying, in effect, hey, man, this Jesus guy is upstaging you, and everybody's leaving us to follow after him. Listen to John's response, verse 27. John answered, and he said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but that I have been sent before him. John's saying, look, you guys have heard with your own ears that, that I'm not Jesus, I'm not the Christ, right? Now, he says that, that, that word receive. We read it that, uh, that, they, um, that John is, is very clear here uh, in verse 27. He says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. That word receive, literally, it means to receive, that which is given, right? It, the idea is that John the Baptist didn't earn his ministry, right? It's not like he had it coming to him. Uh, you know, to, to apply this to myself, I'm not a pastor today because I deserve it. I'm not a pastor today because I've earned it. I'm a pastor today because I have received a trust given to me by God. John says, or uh, the Apostle Paul says this uh, same thing uh, as he's talking to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase." So neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. You see, at the end of the day, we have to ask the question, are we being faithful to what God has entrusted to us to bring God glory and honor? Listen, that means that sometimes if we, if we embrace this attitude, Hey, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to recognize that God entrusts ministry to me. 
What that means, if this is a trust that God has given to us, that means that you don't get a say in what God chooses to give you or how God chooses to work through you and what capacity and what trajectory that will take your life on. You see, we have a great example of, of how God's will and God's ways and the things that he calls us to, the things that he entrusts us to, to, to do, they don't always line up with what necessarily I would choose for myself. I think about the, the Apostle Peter in the end of John's Gospel, John chapter 21. You know, the setting the stage there, Jesus has just restored Peter to ministry. He denied the Lord three times, and the Lord shows up, and he restores Peter to ministry. And then he goes on, and now he's going to tell Peter what he's going to entrust to Peter, the ministry that he's calling Peter to do. He says this, John chapter 21, beginning in verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Now, the text goes on to explain what Jesus meant by this. Verse 19 says, Jesus said this to let Peter know by what kind of a death that he would glorify God. And then Jesus told Peter, follow me. Now, how did Peter receive this news? Verse 20, Peter turned around and he saw behind them the disciple that Jesus loved, right? This is, this is the apostle John. So God is just, Jesus has just spoken to Peter. He says, this is the ministry I'm giving you. This is the ministry I'm entrusting to you. That's the idea. And Peter is now looking at what, God is entrusting to John. He's comparing, right? And so he looks at John and the, the one who leaned over the, to, to Jesus during the supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Verse 21, Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? What about him? Well, you know, you, I'm hearing what, you, what you're entrusting to me. Well, what are you entrusting to him, right? And Jesus replied, verse 22, if I want him to remain alive until I return, Peter, what's that to you? You follow me. This is the attitude. This is the idea. And so John now, this is what he's saying. And he illustrates his point now in verse 29. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, the idea here is you've got the groom, and in modern equivalents, you've got the best man, okay? And traditionally, the role of the best man is to serve as the right-hand man to the groom. And what's the whole goal of the day is that the groom is going to come and receive his bride unto himself, right? And the best man is just there to, 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 to ride shotgun, so to speak. And, and the, you know, his whole job is, hey, let, let me help you to, to be united with your bride, right? In other words, the, the attitude isn't, hey, uh, I want your bride. I, you know, hey, hey there, groom. You know the the everything that's going on here. Uh, I, I want her for myself. 
That, that, that is not the idea. Now, this illustration that John the Baptist is using is perfect because the image of the marriage covenant runs throughout the Bible. See, in the Old Testament, God established a covenant relationship with Israel, very much like a marriage covenant, right? And we see it in Genesis 15. We see it in Genesis chapter 17. We, we see it in Leviticus chapter 20. Let me, let me share that with you. Leviticus chapter 20 um, God speaking says, you shall be uh, holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy, and I've separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Right? This is the attitude. This is the idea. This is the picture, really, of a marriage covenant. I'm choosing you, Israel, and you're going to be mine. You're going to be holy to me. But see, Israel was an unfaithful bride to God. Uh, and Israel frequently broke her vows to God. And God, uh, to, to illustrate this point, in the book of Hosea, God instructed the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. And this prostitute was unfaithful to Hosea, right? And God did this to serve as a picture of how Israel, his bride to himself, really was, was unfaithful to him. But throughout the Bible, God pursued his people with relentless passion to win them back. See, God had a plan for redemption and a means to restore their broken relationship. And Jesus then became the living embodiment of a bridegroom and of a faithful husband, one who is willing to give up his life for the one that he loved. As it is written in 2 Corinthians, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And so John now, he continues, and he gives his followers, and he gives to us five reasons that we should look to Jesus and not look to man. Five reasons we should look to Jesus and not to man. And the first reason here is we should look to Jesus and not to men because Jesus came from heaven. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now that word above, it's the same word that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus last week uh, when he said that you must be born Again, literally born from above. And the idea here, John is saying, look, I don't have all the answers, right? Because I'm from the earth. I'm a man at the end of the day. But Jesus is from heaven. And so this is the first reason to, to look to God, not to men. He's saying to his disciples, I'm a man at the end of the day, for crying out loud. You're all upset that everybody's going to him. They should go to him because he came from heaven, right? Second reason that we should look to Jesus and not to men is because Jesus knows the truth firsthand. Verse 32. And what Jesus has seen, John the Baptist says, and heard that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. Now we read that in, in, back in John chapter 1. Light came into the world, uh, but men love darkness rather than the light. John's making the observation here. Uh, that um, 
what Jesus sees and what he's heard. He's testifying, and there are people that reject it. But listen, the reason we should accept Jesus' testimony, the reason we should look to Jesus and not look to men, again, is because Jesus knows the truth firsthand. He knows the truth firsthand. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 tells us long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he's spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance and through the son, he created the the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and and expresses the very character of God. And this leads us into the third reason that we should look to Jesus and not to men. And that's because Jesus's testimony always agrees with God. It always agrees with God. Look at verse 33. John says, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. That word certified here is key. If you're given to taking notes, you could circle that word. And nearby, you could write to set with a seal. And a modern equivalent of that might be when you have a a document that needs to be authenticated. What do you do? You go to a notary republic or a notary public and and what do they do? They they notarize it, right? They set their seal to the document to say, yes, this this is authentic, right? Now, we've got several examples because the question might come up, you know, okay, how you know, how has God certified Jesus, right? Well, we have examples of this um, in God's own testimony. Three times we read in the, the New Testament that God spoke audibly from heaven, certifying, setting his seal to prove the authenticity of Jesus Christ, God speaking from heaven. The first time was at Jesus's baptism, when God spoke audibly aloud to mankind. Matthew chapter 3 verse 17 tells us that suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, right? You have that certification there. Second time that God spoke audibly from heaven was to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5, we read, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, again, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now, the third time that God certified Jesus Christ, speaking audibly from heaven, was in John chapter 12, as Jesus was praying right before he went to the cross. Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Three times, God giving his certification that Jesus's message uh, is authentic um, and making it very clear, hey, his testimony absolutely agrees with God. Well, the fourth reason that we should look to Jesus and not to men, John tells us, is that because Jesus possessed the unlimited power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 34. He says, For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. See, that that phrase, by measure, here's the idea. The idea 
it, it, you know, it, it's in contrast to mankind, right? It's immeasurable. God gives his spirit without measure to Jesus. But to mankind, there's a measure to, to, the, to us receiving the spirit. Uh, let me explain it this way. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul tells the Ephesians, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that, that phrase, be filled, you've probably heard me teach on this before. Literally, what it means in the Greek, it's active in the Greek, it's active and it's ongoing. It's it 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 reads the, the translation would be uh, be being filled. Now, why is it, you know, it's active and it's ongoing. Why is there this need for you and me to be being filled actively and ongoing? Here's why. Because we are leaky vessels. We're sinners. We're leaky vessels. And so what happens is we, we will receive the, 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 the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, but we need to continually be refilled. And the, the, the whole point of, of verse... Um, 34 here, is that Jesus doesn't have that limitation. He has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. God working through Jesus in the person and work of, of the Holy Spirit is unlimited. And the fifth reason here that we should look to Jesus and not to man is because Jesus has received all authority from the Father. He's received all authority from the Father. Look at verses 35 and 36. He says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Uh, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Now this last point expressly states what the first four implied, and that is simply this. That because of his love for the Son, God the Father has given him supreme authority over all things. Paul told the Ephesian church, God has put all things under the authority of Christ, and he has made him the head over all things for the benefit of the church. Paul told the Philippians, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the question as we close. Are you living under the authority of Jesus? Are you living under the authority of Jesus? Listen, everything and everyone that we look to apart from Jesus, will fail us. Everything and everyone. No pastor is greater than Jesus. No ministry is greater than Jesus. No country is greater than Jesus. No politician is greater than Jesus. The Constitution of the United States is not greater than Jesus. No praise of man is greater than Jesus. We need to look to Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? It was the salvation of sinful man. 
And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what that means. In Romans chapter 8, it tells us very clearly that Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession for the saints. That means that right now, this moment, Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God, and he's praying for you, and he's praying for me by name. Listen, don't look to man. Don't look to any of the trappings of man. Look to Jesus. Corey Ten Boom said this, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look to God, you'll be at rest.